Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God. I thank you for the songs that we just sang. The very fact that they're true. And God, I pray that we would have that heart today that just give me Jesus. And I pray as we look into your word and we see a beautiful story, a beautiful love story woven together by you. A beautiful picture that you painted. I pray, God, through it all, that you would just give us Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. We're going to be back in the book of Ruth again this morning. going to be in Ruth chapter 3. If you haven't been with us as we've gone through this, I'll give a quick kind of review of what's been going on. In chapter 1, we saw Naomi and Elimelech and their, their sons left Israel, left their homeland, went to the land of Moab because of uh, famine because of hard times, went to find better, a better place. The grass is always greener, that kind of thing. They go over there, and their two sons married two Moabite women's. The Moabites were heathens. They were not God's people. They were not following God's ways. They were not believers in a one true God. They were pagans, idol worshippers. But they married these two sons, married two women, and then they died. Elimelech and the two sons died, and it was the three women left, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And Naomi heard that there was food back in Israel, so she's going to go. The two daughters said, we're going with you. And she said, no, you're going to stay. And long story short, one stayed and one went. And Ruth clung to Naomi, and she said, I'm going where you're going. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And they came back. And they were starving. They were hungry. At the time period, a woman without a covering, a woman without a man, was extremely rough. It was extremely hard times. And they come back, and we saw providentially God working through all of this for His glory, for His good pleasure, and for the good of His people. And what we'll find out as we go through, as He's working through this providentially for His glory, it's even for our good today. And so in chapter 2, we see Ruth and Naomi's physical needs providentially met by the kindness of Boaz. She went out to glean, and he gave her abundance in her gleaning. She was able to get the edges, and then he said, drop it on purpose. He's telling his servants, drop it on purpose so she can pick up what you drop. He's providing for her, but she's working for it. And we start to see a connection between Boaz and Ruth. A romantic, even, connection. It's subtle. We don't see it fully, but we're starting to see it. But as we went through chapter 2, we also saw we saw the beginning of what is a near kinsman redeemer. We saw how God, in his law, chose to provide for his people. And they found out, Naomi found out who was helping Ruth. And she said, he is a near kinsman redeemer for us. He is supposed to take over. I mean, he's supposed to provide. He's supposed to take Ruth in under under, um, his covering, in, in a sense. And in that, we saw the picture of what the book of Ruth truly is about. The overarching theme of the book of Ruth is our near kinsman redeemer, who is Christ, 
who we were so much like Ruth. We were lost. We were put aside. We were hungry. We were starving. We were physically in need. We were spiritually dead. And the near kinsman redeemer comes to our rescue. And it's just like the song we sang earlier, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He Lives, Because He Lives, I Can Do Anything. You take out the fact that Jesus Christ lives and we have nothing. We have another dead religion just like the rest of them in the world. But what separates Christianity from all the other religions in the world? Our Savior is alive. He came out of the grave. Can Muhammad boast that? No, he's a rotted carcass. Can Buddha? Can any of the millions of Hindu gods say they're alive? No, they go and they create them with their hands. And we serve a living Savior. And I'm tired of the powerlessness that the church seems to have today. The true church, God's people, has power. Why? Because Christ is power. He is the kinsman redeemer. He did not have... You notice that Boaz did not have to redeem Ruth. Do you know why? Ruth was a Moab. She was not under... He was not obliged to redeem her. She was a Moabitess. She was a foreigner. But Boaz had compassion. He did what he had, did not have to do. Jesus Christ did not have to redeem us. He could have completely wiped off mankind from the face of the earth, and he would have been completely just in doing so. You notice that's what he did with the demons? Satan fell to pride, took a third of the demons with him, a third of the angels with him. They became demons, and Christ sent them no redeemer. God the Father did not send his Son to save them, and he's just in doing so, but he sent his Son to save us, even though he didn't have to. We must remember that as we go through the book. But now as we get into chapter 3, we're going to see more of the back to the earthly what's going on in the narrative. And it's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful love story is what it is. Um, as we see Naomi and or as we see Ruth and Boaz come together. So let's look. Turn to chapter 3. And um, look at, actually look at the last verse in chapter 2, and it kind of helps us get back where we are. Chapter 2, verse 23, it says, So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So she lived with Naomi, and she would go out there every day gleaning and, and working and gathering up barley and then when the barley harvest was finished they would start the wheat and she worked all this time so what what we see here is the time of the harvest is coming to an end i have a feeling there may have been a little bit of a panic here with ruth and maybe with naomi She's seeing Boaz on a regular basis. She's out there in his fields working. He would come, check on his servants. He would come, check things out, make sure things were going. He might eat with them. He might work with them. But now the harvest is coming to an end. What's she going to do all winter? There's no gleaning to be done. The servants will be there to plant, right, to sow new seed. But what's she going to do? There's no gleaning to be done anymore. She obviously has this attraction to Boaz. She wants this to go farther, but here it is. We're coming to the end of time or the end of their time together. So it's, it, there's probably this little bit of urgency, a feeling like, oh, no, I only have one day left. The, the harvest is over. I, I, I may never see him again. I may not see him again for a long time. And so in it, that's where we come to in, in chapter 3, verse 1. 
we see a plan devised. Okay, so let's read it. Verse, Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Naomi is seeking security for Ruth. The New American Standard actually says security. It says, should I not seek security for you? She wanted what most parents want for their children, right? She wanted security. She wanted things to be stable. Yes, she had, they had gathered a lot. Yes, Boaz had given her an extra amount of grain. He had let her pick up from the from what they dropped, and he'd let her glean in places that they don't usually get to glean. So they were good for the year. But what about next year? Is Boaz still going to be there? Is Boaz still going to have the same kindness? Is Boaz going to show Ruth that same kindness if he's married to another woman? Probably not. Right? So she's wanting security. In that day and age, and really in any day and age, Security comes through marriage, or a great deal of it. Um, for young women in that time, they, they didn't go out. They weren't self-sufficient. It was The culture was set up that for a family. A family was secure in, when it was together, when it was whole. And that's what she wanted. She wanted a good home, marital happiness, financial security. And probably the most important thing children. Naomi was now without an heir, and she didn't want to see Ruth go through life without children. So she wanted, that was the most important thing. That was, that was your status in that time, was how many children do you have? And so, and, and kind of when you read this, the, the feeling I kind of get is that maybe Naomi had been telling Ruth, hey, hey, you need to talk to Boaz. Hey, there's that Boaz. You know how moms are, right? It's just like we heard this morning. People don't change. Moms haven't changed. Hey, there's that Boaz. He seems like a nice young man, right? You guys have all heard it. Um, so th- I think that was probably going on. Well, now they're out of time. So Naomi is going to make a plan to pursue this themselves. They, they, maybe they had been waiting on Boaz. Maybe they said, well, he's the kinsman redeemer. Maybe he'll come to you. Um, but now they're kind of out of time. So it's important. So, so she kind of starts to make the plan herself. Now, back in chapter 1, in verse 8 and 9, Naomi had prayed a prayer And she had said, the Lord grant that you find rest in the house of of your husbands. And she was talking to her daughters-in-law. So Naomi had actually prayed back in chapter 1 that you would find rest in a house of your husband. And so now what we see happen, this has been um, probably close to a year later or several months later, we see Naomi actually becoming the answer to her own prayer. And that's, a, that's something that's important for us to remember. Sometimes we are the answer to our own prayer. Sometimes we have to get off our knees and get on our feet and go walk out the thing that we're asking God to do. And there's other times when we may just have to stay on our knees and depend on God completely to do it. There was a time a long time ago I was dealing with some students at school that were getting involved in witchcraft. And it was a it was a group of kids. One of them was a Christian and he had came to me asking me about these questions and and some of his friends were basically trying to trap him into believing that witchcraft was okay. And I was praying about it. I was praying about it. And I was praying about it. Because it's at school, and those kids aren't believers, and I don't really know them, and I probably shouldn't say anything to them. I probably shouldn't do anything. And as I was praying, it was like God showed me it's time to get up. It's time to do something about this. And so that's what I did. But 
and I went, what I did was I gave them a Bible and highlighted some verses talking about witchcraft, and it turned into a big deal and got in a lot of trouble over it and all that stuff. But the long story short is I was praying for those kids to know that witchcraft was evil. And I was the mouthpiece that God was going to use to show them that it was evil. And so that's what we see here. Naomi had prayed for Ruth and to, to have a husband, basically, to have a house. And now we're to the point where she's saying, okay, there's this door of opportunity and it's closing. And I think it's our job now to get on our feet and push on the door. See if it's open. See if it swings. So that's what we see there. Um, so in verse 2, she says, Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So she's like, here, we have this great opportunity. We have this, you have this, these feelings for Boaz. It's obvious. I've spent enough time with you to know. I saw it with my son. You had the same look in your eyes with him. You have these feelings for Boaz. And he is our near kin. He is our relative. And he's over there tonight winnowing barley. And so we know that the wheat and barley harvest are both finished, which, which is important because I think we can understand a little bit about the time of year it was. If the... If the Barley and wheat harvest had just finished. That puts the scene, that puts the time at the, at the Feast of Trumpets. We're real close to the Feast of Trumpets. We can't tell exactly when. It doesn't give us that detail, but we know this. The Feast of Trumpets happened in a time when there was no moon. Matter of fact, what signaled the Feast of Trumpets was when they saw the very first new moon. So it was a very sliver of a moon. That's when the trumpets would blow. That's when the feast would begin. And so what does that mean? It's dark. It is dark at night. You guys know what it's like. It also means the skies are absolutely beautiful. If you haven't ever noticed, when there's no moon, you can see more stars. Um, so it, it kind of shows you that it's dark at night, and that's going to be important as we go on. Um, and, and then it says he was winnowing grain. And just in case you don't know exactly how that process is, what they would do with winnowing is they, they would crush or beat the grain and i think he's actually winnowing barley at this time so so it was the barley and the heads and the seeds and they would take it and they would actually beat it or sometimes they would stomp on it or sometimes they would roll carts over it and the idea was to break up the shells off of the kernel of barley the so you were basically breaking off the outside shell the husk and that was called the chaff and when they talk about winnowing, what they would actually do then is they would have some method to throw it up in the air, just throw it up in the air, and the wind would blow out the chaff, and the heavier part of the barley, the seeds, would fall to the ground. So that's separating the wheat from the chaff. That's where that comes from. It's, it, um, it, that's how they would do it. It's, a, it's actually very hard work because what are you doing? You're just if, picture yourself taking a big scoop shovel and just throwing the dirt up in the air. I mean, that's basically what it is. It's heavy. You throw it up in the air. The wind blows it. You do it again. And then after a while, you scoop it all up and put it in a pile. You start all over. Hard work. We have machinery that does that now. But um, that's what he was doing. And there's a couple of things um, that, that we um, can learn from this. The threshing floor was strategically placed. Where would it have been placed? Right in between two big hills, right? No. This, the, the threshing floor had to be placed somewhere where it would get a breeze, right? So it wasn't placed in a place where, hey, I'll put this right by my house so that I don't have to walk far when I'm done so I can go home. No, it was placed in a, somewhere where you could get a good breeze. And it also you didn't want too much breeze. Because if you throw it, to, if, you, if you've got too much wind, if you're in western Oklahoma and you try to winnow wheat, you lose all your wheat. It all blows away. You throw it up in the air and it's all gone. So it was placed in a, in a location according to that, which meant it was probably a long ways from Boaz's house. 
And it's also interesting to note that Boaz himself was doing the winnowing. Boaz was a very wealthy man. We can tell that when we read um, his first introduction. He was extremely wealthy. He had servants. He had servants in charge of servants. In other words, he had a hierarchy of employees, right? He had the lower level and he had managers over them. He did not have to do the winnowing himself. So why was he out there? Why, why, would, why would he be out there when he's wealthy enough and he doesn't have to be? And here's the answer. He didn't get wealthy by being lazy. And the, the reality is men are built to work. And even if you get to a point where you don't have to work anymore, you should still work. That's what we can learn from Boaz here. Even though he didn't have to work, he's still out there working. And there could be several reasons why. I can imagine myself getting to the point if I owned a business and you're in there doing paperwork and stuff all the time and it's just like, you know what, I want to go out and do the work. I want to be the guy out there and I'll just go out there and, and because I do it now. Whenever I get a day off from my job, what do I like to do? I, go out, I like to go out and work. Why? We're built for that. We're designed for that. It's good for us. And that's what we see with him. And so if you own a business and, and you've built it up from the ground up, don't ever be afraid. Don't be like, oh, no, I can't scoop, stoop down to the level of the help. Anybody ever worked for somebody like that? I have. And I've also worked for people who would come in right beside me and outwork me. Which one would I rather work for? Which one's going to get more out of me as an employee? A guy that will get right in there next to me. I worked for one guy... One time, one of the hardest working men I've ever seen. And um, he had built his company pretty good size, a construction company, mostly dirt work and things like that. And I remember him saying he was looking for a backhoe operator and the, this young guy that he was hiring. I was just summer help, but he was, hire, he was looking to hire a full-time backhoe operator. And I heard him talking to the guy. And this kid, I say kid, he was probably in his 20s or so. He said, well, I don't want, he said, I want to make sure, I don't want to run a shovel, I want, I want to run a backhoe. And the answer the guy gave said, I've been doing this for 30 years and I own that backhoe and I still run a shovel. He didn't hire him. The same guy, I was out, he was in the, he was in a track hoe and I was trying to dig a post hole and I hit a rock and I'm sitting there just, I said, it's impossible I can't get it. I was, a, I was a young, in shape, strong guy at the time. I mean, I, I felt like I could do anything, but I couldn't get this, I couldn't get this hole dug. And he's an older guy. He's, I say older, he's probably my age now or something like that. But at the time, he seemed old. He was also not in shape, had a pretty good gut. He gets out there, and he grabs those post hole diggers and goes to pounding in that hole, and he's just whacking. I'm like... And you can hear it hitting that rock. Boom, 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 boom. And then pretty soon he pulls out a big old chunk of rock out of there with those post holes. He just broke it, broke through. And I was like, wow. Never again. I will never stop again. I'm going to, and I would, I would beat it. I watched how he did it. I, I feel like Boaz was that kind of man. Maybe he was there because they were behind and trumpets was coming. And when the trumpet blew, the Feast of Trumpets, you stopped all work until that feast was over. Maybe that's why he was there. Or maybe he was there to give his employees a break. Which is a very Christian thing to do, I would say. You work harder so somebody else who usually works hard can get a little break. I think that's something that we should we could learn from. We don't know exactly why he was there, but we know that he was a hard worker, and that's the reason, the primary reason he was there. And in verse three, so so that's what's going on, and here here we start to see Naomi's plan. She says, "Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak." 
and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your cloak. In the Greek, this means getting all dolled up. I mean, there's no easy, I mean, she's just, hey, we're going to get you fixed up and you're going down there. You're going to get this man's attention. That's our goal. Is there anything wrong with that? No. There's nothing wrong with that. Right? She's, so, so what she do? She washes herself. And anoint yourself, that's actually using oils for perfume. That's make yourself look good, make yourself smell good, put on your best mantle, and head down there and see if you can get Boaz's attention. Um, and then, actually, many would actually suggest here, there's, there's not a complete proof of it, but many would suggest here that she was actually ador- or adorning herself as a bride. She would, be, she would wear basically what a bride would wear, signifying even further, hey, Boaz, I, I appreciate all you've done here, this relationship we have with me gleaning in your field and stuff, but I think I want a little more. What do you think, you know? So we don't know for sure, but she was definitely dressed to get attention. Um, And then it says, Do not make yourself known unto the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And then it says, But he lies down and observe the place where he lies. So a lot of people would question why Boaz was going to stay the night on the threshing floor. Why would he stay there? Well, that goes back to... The threshing floor had to be placed strategically to get the wind. There's no moon. It's very dark. It's hard to travel at night. They didn't have a phone they could pull out with a flashlight on it, right? They didn't have headlights on their cars. So that's part of it. The other thing is there's a big pile of barley there. He just got done winnowing. It's very dark. And I go home. Remember we heard this morning, people don't change? If you leave a big pile of whatever money you have going on outside here, and we go home to Stratford, I come back, is it going to be there? Probably not. They didn't have currency, but they know that people were gleaning the fields. People would actually go out and pick the, cut the barley off the edges of the fields in order to eat. I'm pretty sure there's people, because people don't change, we live in a fallen world. They would have helped themselves to the pile of barley. He was guarding it. He was guarding the barley. Didn't want somebody to steal it. If they steal it, he doesn't eat. If they steal it, he can't pay his servants. He, can't, he doesn't have seed to replant the next year. Very important to protect his investment. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. So as it gets dark... Figure out, make sure you know where he is. And then it says, go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So this is where it gets steamy. This is where we have to understand the time of the culture. We have to understand some euphemisms in order to understand what's going on here. She says, go and uncover. Well, first, make sure you know where he lays down. Because there may be other guys out there working. And when, it, when that sun goes down and completely, there's no moon tonight. That would be embarrassing. I'm going to go basically propose marriage. But I'm going to do it to the wrong guy. <laughs> That's not good. So make sure you know where he, where he is. She she has devised the plan well. And then it says, go uncover his feet. And this is the one that I have been struggling with for months. And because there's there's a lot of different opinions, there's a lot of different ideas among the commentators on what this means to go and uncover his feet. It is full of sexual undertones. There is no doubt about that. It is using sexual language. The, word, the verb uncover, when it says go uncover his feet, is piel. And it means to uncover, but it was a word that was usually meaning uncover for sexual purposes. That's the way it would be used. So 
when you hear when the when the Jewish reader would hear that word in the Hebrew, that's what their mind is going to think. Okay, it's going to be because that's how it's used mostly. And I think the reason for this is to just gather attention and to realize how this is kind of um, what's going on here is risque. Now it's not sin. But it's risque. It's pushing the lines, if that makes sense. What Naomi is asking Ruth to do here is, is radical. It's a, it's a little bit outside of Orthodox Judaism. Okay? And so she says, go and uncover his feet. And this is intensified by using the word feet because so many times that was used as a euphemism for sexual parts. And there's other places in the scriptures you can read that. where it, it And what we heard about a euphemism, I'm going to wind up messing up that word, euphemism. What we heard about that, it's using a different word to take some of the shock value off, right? So instead of saying the sexual part of a male, you would say they would use the word feet, and that was a common thing. It wasn't uncommon to do that. And so when it uses this now, it's triggering in the mind that kind of thought process However, that's not what was going on. She was actually talking about his feet. Uncover his feet. She was not suggesting in any way, because we have read the entire, when you go through the entire book, and I've read it a lot of times the last several months, all you get out of Boaz, out of Ruth, and out of Naomi is integrity. They are, they are full of integrity. And so... We can use that as the context of the whole book to know that they weren't here. Insinu- she wasn't insinuating that she should try to approach him sexually. But it was enough, it was close enough to make sure that he realized, this is, I want more. I don't want to be your friend. I want to be your wife. And so... There is no doubt that's what was going on. And, and we know that because of the context, um, because it says, she says, um, go and uncover his feet and lie down. So in other words, uncover his feet and lie down at his feet. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So no arguments here. Ruth seems to like the plan. Which she's submitted to her mother-in-law. She has been ever since they left. Um, but she also probably not going to argue because she's running out of time too, right? It's like the kids at the end of camp. You've been wanting to talk to this girl. And last day of camp's coming up and you haven't had the courage yet to introduce yourself. And here we are. And, you know, you start getting a little panicky and then usually say something dumb. <laughs> She's kind of at that point. She's panicky, right? She's running out of time. She says, all that you say I will do. And so verse 6, she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. A little side note here, ladies. If you want to um, approach a man about anything, feed him first. It just works out better. We're in a better mood when we have eaten. It's a fact. My grandma always said the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. It is true. Feed him first. Um, so make sure that once he had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And so you can picture it this way. He's eaten. He's in a good mood. It seems like it was a good year. The harvest was good. Nearing trumpets, the grain is all in, the sun is going down, and he lies down on a big heap of grain. So it's, it's showing again his wealth. He's got a big heap of grain, has lots to guard. And as the sun goes down and it's almost dark, she notices where he lays. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Can you get the nervousness of Ruth? Do you think Ruth was nervous at this point? Her livelihood is on the line. 
If she, if she embarrasses herself or if she has misread this whole situation, um, if he is completely on a different train of thought, do you think she's going to get to glean extra next year? Do you think she would even have the courage to go ask him to glean in his fields again? No, she, she is nervous. Not only that, just the fear of rejection. Does anybody fear rejection? Yeah, of course we do. Of course we do. So all of that is there. The, the, and then the great, what it says is, then she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid down. Uh, five terse words. With five words, the author has now thrown Ruth and Boaz together in some very irregular circumstances. Look at the situation they're in now. All of a sudden, sleeping together, alone, in the dark, on an isolated threshing floor. This may not seem that shocking in our culture. Stuff like this happens pretty regular. In that culture, this is taboo. Okay, This is not normal. This is very outside. So this was, would have been very uncomfortable for Ruth and for Boaz had he known it, but he's asleep. And then there's some mystery here on why uncover his feet. What is the purpose of uncovering his feet? Um, one reason that has been said, and I think it makes sense, is that uncover his feet and he will gradually get cold and wake up slowly so she doesn't startle him. He's, standing, he's out there sleeping on the grain to guard the grain and you walk up and shake him, you might get a knife, right? You might get stabbed in the gut or something, right? Because he's going to wake up startled. Uh, but you do it this way, you uncover his feet, he wakes up slowly. But the other thing that we see here is we see Ruth showing her submission to Boaz. She uncovers his feet and lays down at his feet. Similar to how we should respond to our near kinsman redeemer. Similar to how... Well, I mean, just picture it this way. We have the Christ, the one who is holy, the one whose feet we should be washing, right? We should lay down at our Savior's feet. And at that place is the most comfortable, safest place that we can be. And that's what we see with Boaz, or with Ruth here. She's going to lay at the feet of Boaz, signifying, I am willing to submit to you. I am willing to come at your feet as your maidservant. And so Ruth has executed Naomi's plan now, right down to the letter, right? And in verse 8, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. <laughs> Just random. Wake up. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a little different. So picture what, what Boaz is seeing here. And, and the verb here actually means, when it says startled, the verb actually means to tremble. And I actually believe that it, it was cold and he started like it, the tremble wasn't from fear. He, he didn't wake up from fear, but he woke up because he was cold. Um, because there was nothing else mentioned that would scare him, that would startle him to wake him up. But it doesn't really matter. He wakes up, notices the woman at his feet. She obviously wasn't asleep. Which How could she sleep, right? She lays down there. I'm sure she tries to sleep. I'm sure she tries to close her eyes, but there's no way. Her heart's probably still going 100 miles an hour, right? She's nervous. All these things are going on. He wakes up, and he breaks the silence. Verse 9, who are you? So it's so dark, he can't tell who she is. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Better translation there is actually maidservant. And in all the other, in, in, it's a different word than what we've seen in the rest of the book of Ruth. The terminology begins to change here. She says maidservant, which would be the same terminology as any eligible 
woman would use for marriage. She's a maidservant now, not a servant, not a worker. So it's a different word that she uses here. I am Ruth, your maidservant. In other words, I am eligible for you to marry. Just letting you know that. Throwing some hints out there. And, and then she says, now, here is where Ruth departs from Naomi's plan. Naomi didn't tell her to do this next part. She says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She took it a step further than what Naomi had planned. Naomi said, lay there, tell him who you are, and he will tell you what to do. She says, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Spread your wings over your maidservant, for you are a redeemer. Look back at Ruth 2.12. In verse 12, chapter 2, this was when Naomi or when Ruth and Boaz had first met and and Boaz prayed this, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord. He was talking about the kindness that Ruth had given to Naomi. He was talking about how she had stayed loyal to her mother-in-law and he says the lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the lord the god of israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge now boaz is about to be the answer to his own prayer and ruth had clung to those words whose wings is she going to be under Boaz said, be under the Lord, the God of Israel's wings. And she's saying, I want you. She's asking him, basically, be the answer to his own prayer. She is hoping and praying that the method God uses to bring Ruth under his wing is by bringing her under the wing of Boaz. And that's how God cares for his people, right? God has always cared for his people. He will bring you under his wings by bringing you under the wings of somebody else. When you need help, God sends people. He doesn't appear by himself. He sends his people, and that's how he's doing this in this case. And you may find yourself on either side of this at any given time, right? As a child of God, you may be the one that God uses to further his kingdom, like he is Boaz here. You may be the one that he uses to help somebody else financially, physically, spiritually. Or you may be the one that he uses to help his church as a whole, financially, physically, spiritually. Or you may be the one that needs the care And actually, if you live on this planet very long as a Christian, you'll be on both sides of this. Most of you have been on both sides of this. You've needed the care, and somebody has helped you. God has sent his people to help you in whatever capacity that you needed. And there's been times when God has used you to help other people. That's how we work. That's how we are as a family. That's how we are as a church body. That's how we should be. And that's what we're seeing God do here. He says, she says, bring me under your wings. She wants the covering of Boaz. And by having the covering of Boaz, she has the covering of the father. And let me tell you something, men. This is how your family has a covering. You are the one who is responsible for bringing a covering, bringing protection, both spiritually and physically, bringing protection. providing for your family both spiritually and physically and financially it's your job they are under your wings which puts them under the wings of god the covering does that make sense that's what we're seeing here and ruth understood this and boaz no doubt did too and so ruth's action here actually honored Naomi even further. She was now seeking more than just comfort and a husband for herself. By Now, by asking Boaz this, to fill the role of the Redeemer, 
she was actually also seeking an heir for Naomi. See, because you remember Naomi has lost everything. She lost her husband and she lost all of her children. They were all dead. And so by Ruth taking it a step further, maybe Naomi didn't want to ask this because it would have seemed selfish. I don't know. But Ruth has taken it a step further. And Boaz understood this because look at his response. In verse 10, he says, And he said, May, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this, kind, this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. We see Ruth could have had other options. There were other young men in the field that she could have pursued. She could have found a husband. Evidently, she was probably attractive. She definitely caught Boaz's eye, right? And he's thinking, wow, she could have had any of these guys probably, but she hasn't. And he says that is even more kind because by going pursuing Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, rather than these other young men, she secures an heir for Naomi as well. Her first child will be Naomi's heir. And that is extremely important in that culture. He says, and now my daughter, so she's, she's waiting. She's, she's on pins and needles, right? She's done all that she said that she would do. She's added this little extra in. I want you to be my husband. What's he going to say? She's, and he starts with, blessed. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. And then in verse 11, he says, and now my daughter, do not fear. Whew. There it is. There's the relief. Yes, he's not mad. He didn't kick me. I'm at his feet and he didn't kick me. That's good. He didn't run me off. He didn't say any harsh words. He says, do not fear. When the near kinsman redeemer tells you, do not fear. It is the most glorious thing you can hear. And if you belong to Christ, he has said that. He has said, do not fear. And that is, that is straight to me this morning as I have found myself rather anxious over our world the last few days. You guys notice it's kind of falling apart. Praise God in Alabama has virtually outlawed abortion. But it's turned the world on its side upside down, or on its head upside down, and, and you find all levels of depravity and wickedness coming out against that. And it's just, it's, it's this, there's this weight. But Christ says, do not fear. He is in control. He was in control of this whole situation. Ruth was never in danger of starving to death. She may have felt like she was, but there was, he was not going to let her starve. He was not going to leave Naomi out there in Moab to die. He wasn't going to leave her in the desert. He was going to bring her back into, his, into her home country. He was going to bring her back into the fold. He always was going to do that. He's not nervous. He's not anxious. He knows exactly what he's doing. He has all of this in his providential control. Do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. So not only Boaz has noticed this now, but everyone in Bethlehem has noticed this Boaz, she's worthy. She's virtuous. And you notice that she was not referred to as a Moabitess in this chapter. It's always been Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moab, Ruth from Moab, whatever, all through the book. But now all of a sudden when he addresses her now, she is a worthy woman. She is a virtuous woman. The language has changed. And she's not only recognized by Boaz as that, but she's recognized by all the men in town. Everybody has noticed this woman is a virtuous woman. Men, if you're unmarried, if you're seeking a wife, seek one like that. Seek one that has the reputation as a virtuous woman. It will be well for you. Women, 
seek to have that reputation. Above all, seek virtue. And then in verse 12, it's like just when she's thinking this is going exactly how I want it to, there's like a little hiccup. And he says, now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. There's a relative that's closer related to Elimelech than I am. Just when everything's going smooth, there it is. It's like God is saying, no, there's going to be more. By the time this is over, there is no doubt in both Ruth and Boaz and anybody that reads the story's minds who was in charge. There was no room for coincidence to bring this together. This has to be God orchestrated all the way through, or it couldn't have come together. And I, and I am reminded of this in a time when we were all pretty excited about a new building. And Paul and I talked a while ago. I said, you know, we know this. When we get a building... We know that it's going to be God. It'll be a story similar to this where there's no way left. It couldn't have been done by man's devices. We will know when we're sitting there that God did it. And that's how he works in his people. That's how he works so many times in his people. So that he gets the glory. But he says in verse 13, Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So this actually shows honor on the part of Boaz. Why? Why didn't he just say, ah, that guy, he's nearer than I, but he, he's, not, he's not doing anything. I'm just, I obviously like this girl. I am willing to redeem her. I want to redeem her. I want her as a wife. She looks pretty good, all dolled up coming in here, right? Why doesn't he just do that? Well, he put his, Boaz is honoring to God's word and the law here. He puts his personal preferences aside for the sake of God's law and for the sake of the other redeemer. Why? Because if he does it wrong, then a year later something can be said. And then he's put Ruth under trouble instead of protection. He's going to go about it the right way. He's honoring Ruth because he enters, if he enters this marriage without the proper consent, he endangers the marriage. He endangers the security of their life together. He's going through the front door, basically, so to speak. He's not sneaking in the back door. And that's a, I think that's something that's important in our culture for young men to realize. When you're pursuing a young lady, you don't sneak through the back door. You don't try to talk her. If her parents have rules, you honor those rules. If her parents have issues, you honor that. You approach it with grace and kindness and reverence to the parents. Why? Because they are the parents. And that's what the Bible would tell us to do. Young ladies, same way. Through the front door. That establishes the marriage in the proper context. That establishes the marriage on the proper foundation to thrive from that point on. I think this also may explain why Boaz has not acted faster to redeem Ruth in the first place. What's been the holdup? Well, first, he's busy with the harvest. If you've ever been involved with the harvest, you work when it's there. You work when you can. There's not a whole lot of time. You're usually daylight to dark. You get it done. So there's not a lot of time to be pursuing young ladies. And the other thing is, there was another kinsman redeemer. He was, he was waiting to see... If this other man was going to step up in his place or in that place. And then when he says lie down here, the word actually means like lodge here. So it's showing that he's saying this is not sexual in any way. This is not promiscuous from this point on. It's been a little risque, 
And now that that's done, he says, lodge here. In other words, you sleep here because it's too dangerous for her to travel. Remember, it's extremely dark. It's too dangerous for her to travel. But we're going to time it just right. He says, so in verse 14, so she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could not recognize another. So it's still dark. But as soon as you walk off this threshing floor and get a few hundred yards away or whatever, there will be enough light to travel. So we're going to, right before dawn, you're going to get up and leave. Now, why do they do this? It's just a, it's a perception. We don't want somebody thinking something happened that didn't happen. Because remember, we want this thing to be established on solid ground. And then in verse 15, and he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And again, this was a, this was basically almost like a dowry at this point. This is a guarantee. This is a, you need to relax. This is a, you can rest assured that I am going to take care of this. Here's some food. Take this home. I don't want to leave, I don't want your mother-in-law to, leave, to have nothing out of this, you can tell her to rest assured, I'm going to take care of this. And then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? So you know Naomi's just sitting there. She probably didn't sleep all night. She's just sitting there waiting, rocking, whatever it is, you know, waiting on her. And here she comes. She sees her coming, meets her at the door. How did you fare? How did it go? And she told her all that the man had done for her. And saying, these six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Take this. Give this to her. This is a symbol. This, is a, this signifies that I am going to take care of this. And Naomi definitely understood that because look at how she responds. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And it's really hard to stop there, but it has, it has went well long enough. We've seen the love story. We've seen the marriage proposal basically happen here. We've seen Ruth lay at the foot of her kinsman redeemer, and, and the kinsman redeemer tell her, do not fear. And so as we close, I would encourage you, to look to your kinsman redeemer. Look to Christ. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is the one who has provided all. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Right? So look to him. Are you at his feet? There's different times and different in our lives where we're at different, our relationship with Jesus is not what it should be. And that's never because he's not where he should be. Obviously, he's right where he is supposed to be doing the work of our Savior. And we push ourselves away sometimes. And so I would encourage you today to go to the Savior's feet and rest there. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, Lord, for a Savior, for a Redeemer who gave all, who died who overcame death on our behalf. Lord, I, I, I just, God, I thank you for reminding us of that, even through this beautiful love story, this amazing providential care you've had for your people. And I, I look forward, God, to, to, to going through the rest of the story, to, to finishing the book, and just seeing your amazing providence come through on the behalf of your people. As you have always done, you've always cared for your people. I praise you for that, God. I thank you now. And I pray, Lord, that if there's any here who do not know their kinsman redeemer, who have not bowed at his feet, I pray, Lord, that you would soften their heart today, grant them repentance, and cause them to crawl to the feet of Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.